Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court. And this week, decidedly, this is a show about the lives that are irrevocably altered by all of those things. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and this is my beat at Slate. This last week brought a raft of cert grants in a bunch of new cases at the high court, including the long-awaited decision to hear the Mifepristone abortion pill challenge out of Texas. The Supreme Court also agreed to hear a case from a January 6th defendant who wants to dismiss a charge accusing him of obstructing an official proceeding. That's a charge that Donald Trump himself also faces. The case could have big implications for Trump's own future legal liability. The court also asked for a speedy briefing on a case raising the issue of whether, as former president, Donald Trump is absolutely immune from criminal charges. And all of that is to come in the next half of this Supreme Court term. And we will, I promise, cover the arguments as they happen. This week also brought us a deeply reported, really superb piece from our colleagues at the New York Times, looking back at how the Supreme Court granted cert, heard and authored the Dobbs opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, and did so largely by just not adhering to any standard or convention of judicial behavior or protocol. Here on Amicus, we are not super inclined to cede our time to the inner workings of the secret society that is SCOTUS this particular week. And that's because we are just gobsmacked and we are heartsick at the latest news out of Texas where women's lives are being put on the line week after week, year after year, thanks to Dobbs, thanks to Samuel Alito, thanks to Ken Paxton and all the other non-medically trained expert people who are parked between pregnant people and the healthcare that they need. And so that's going to be our focus this week on the show. The folks at the sharp end of Dobbs and the litigation that is underway to try to grant them some relief. Now, later on in the show, our Slate Plus members are going to get to hear an exclusive conversation between me and Mark Joseph Stern, where we will tackle the slight narrowing that happened with that cert grant in the Pristone case. And we're also going to talk about a conversion therapy as free speech case that was not granted this week, but still has an awful lot to tell us about how this court is doing the law. Check out slate.com slash amicus plus if you are not yet a member, but you want to join us. And if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you, thank you, thank you, as always, for your support. The idea that Miss Cox wants desperately to be a parent and this law might actually cause her to lose that ability is uh, shocking. The, the law has been in effect, and, and it, the effects are so crystal clear that we don't need to guess at it. That very same day, Attorney General Paxton started threatening to prosecute anyone who would give Kate an abortion. I mean, I cannot imagine the strength and bravery that that woman has to be able to do this while she's in the middle of the worst news, the worst health crisis of her life. Then the court would be saying that a patient needs to have blood or amniotic fluid dripping down their leg before they can come to court. And quite obviously, patients in those situations are much more concerned with getting proper medical care and saving their lives, their fertility, and their families than they are with finding a lawyer. And it's agonizing, but it's also kind of beautiful that 
every time we give light to our stories, it gives courage to someone else. So this week's show is about the impact of a single case from 2021, and the case is Dobbs v. Jackson. In the event that that Dobbs decision is not fresh on your mind, on Friday, the New York Times dropped a thoroughly reported timeline of how that long-shot appeal, coming almost minutes after Amy Coney Barrett had been seated on the court, was taken up, broadened, and decided for perfectly political reasons. The New York Times piece also confirms that the cert and decision process in Dobbs was precisely as ends-driven, corrupt, and mindlessly violent toward women as we all imagined it to be. And that is where we are laser-focused this week. Not on the unnamed sources who confirm that Samuel Leto maneuvered the toppling of Roe, or that Brett Kavanaugh is fundamentally useless, or that Amy Coney Barrett is ultimately just a coward. We are not focused on those things. We are focused on the primal scream from so many of us this week as we watched Kate Cox's case unfold in Texas. Because regardless of how craven and broken the system was that allowed Dobbs to be decided, women are going to keep dying, they're going to keep bleeding out, they're going to keep going septic in hospital parking lots, and that's going to happen all as a result of abortion restrictions that were allowed by Dobbs. The 5-4 to decision in Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade formally returned the question of abortion regulations to the states, partially allegedly, in the hopes that judges could get out of the abortion arbitration racket. But this week, the Texas Supreme Court, in a 9 to nothing unanimous decision, very much got itself back into the abortion arbitration racket in the case of Kate Cox. Cox was challenging the hot mess that is current Texas law regarding medical exceptions to its unbelievably draconian abortion restrictions. She was carrying a non-viable pregnancy that would likely end in the death of her fetus and also possibly impair her ability to bear future children. And yet Cox was forced to leave the state in order to terminate that pregnancy after Texas's high court determined that her physician's good faith belief that she deserved the exception would not shield her from huge fines and up to 99 years in prison or the loss of her medical license. Cox faced almost exactly the same barriers as the plaintiffs in a massive lawsuit called Zorowski versus Texas that was filed last summer by a group of women and physicians asking whether Texas law actually demands that pregnant people lose their lives or future fertility in order to satisfy the new state laws. Joining us today is the lead plaintiff in that lawsuit, Amanda Zorowski. She lives in Texas with her husband, Josh, whom she met in preschool in their home state of Indiana, and they live with their dogs, Paisley and Millie. We're also joined for this conversation by trial attorney Jamie Levitt, who, alongside counsel from the Center for Reproductive Rights, brought the Zorowski case last summer. Jamie and the Center also represent Kate Cox. She is managing partner of the New York office of Morrison Forster. Jamie, Amanda, it is such a pleasure to have both of you on the show this particular week. And before we even start, I want to thank both of you for your great big voices on an issue that has been breaking all of our hearts the last few days. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. So, Amanda, I, I want to start with you, um, and I, I kind of hate doing this to you, but I think folks need to hear this story of your pregnancy loss, your efforts to be treated in increasingly hellish um, conditions. And I, and as I said, I, I hate that you have to tell and retell this story um, that becomes one of the prongs of your lawsuit, but it's almost impossible, I think, to understand the stakes of what this litigation means without your voice humanizing it. So do you mind uh, yet again reliving your story for us? Sure. Um, I think it is important. I think it's it helps to illustrate what these laws are doing and what they can do. And so even though it's terrible to relive it over and over again, I think it's important that, that we do. So um, essentially what happened was after about a year and a half of trying to get pregnant, lots of rounds of fertility treatments, different tests, exams, procedures, um, I was finally pregnant last spring and everything was going really well until about the 18-week mark. Um, at which point I was diagnosed with a condition called incompetent cervix or cervical insufficiency. Basically what that means is I was dilating prematurely. Um, obviously a baby can't survive outside the mother's womb that early. So we were told that there was nothing the doctors could do to save the pregnancy or save the baby. And so it was inevitable that we were going to lose her. Now, at that point, what would have happened or what should have happened pre-Dobbs um, was my doctor should have been able to intervene. She should have been able to um, induce labor and I should have been able to deliver the baby and begin the healing process. But because the baby's heart was still beating, had she induced labor, it would have been considered an illegal abortion. And so she couldn't do anything. So we just had to sit and wait until either the baby's heart stopped beating or until I met the medical exception in Texas, which states that my life is at risk, at which point our doctor could intervene. So we were locked in this hell waiting for one of those things to happen. And what happened in my case is my life finally became at risk after three days when I went into septic shock. Um, at that point, my doctor could finally provide health care, and it landed me in the ICU for three days and then the hospital for another four days after that. I'm going to now ask you to tell us about just a couple of the other plaintiffs in this suit. Um, there's been a sort of different tranches of, of plaintiffs uh, added as you went along. And I wonder if you can tell us about one or two others. Um, the stories, you know, the testimony has been just harrowing. But just give us a sense of a couple of the other people that you've kind of <laughs> formed common cause with in order to tell these stories together. <laughs> Yeah, there are a few that had an instance similar to mine. Um, I, I think there's a handful of us that have a similar story. There are two in particular that were carrying twins. Um, one of the twins in both cases was diagnosed with a fatal fetal anomaly, meaning it wasn't going to survive. But the other twin was healthy and, and was going to be fine. Um, continuing to carry the unhealthy twin would have put the healthy twin's life at risk. Um, but those two women were not able to get an abortion for their um, unhealthy twin because it would be considered an abortion, even though it would have protected the life. It was necessary to protect the life of the other twin. Um, so that's a harrowing 
example, I think. Um, and then there's another one that a lot of folks have probably heard of who her child was diagnosed with a fatal fetal anomaly as well. She couldn't get an abortion. She couldn't leave the state. So she had to carry to term. This just breaks my heart. She had to carry to term knowing that the baby wasn't going to live. And then once the baby was born, she had to watch her slowly, essentially suffocate to death. Um, and, you know, <laughs> these lawmakers say this is pro-life. I just don't understand what's pro-life about any of those instances. So amidst all of this just relentless trauma, Jamie, the CRR, lawyers at your firm and several other firms come together to file the case that becomes Zorowski versus Texas. Um, as I said, Amanda's the name plaintiff. And, and this is supposed to be a challenge about parsing this murk of these overlapping Texas statutes that don't make any sense and then trying to parse the fuzzy exceptions to the murky statutes. So I'm going to just take a crack. Amanda's already flicked at it. Let me take a crack at explaining what the law seems to say, and then you're going to try to make clear the mess that uh, you are sitting in right now. Texas imposed a full criminal trigger ban that would have punished providers, including revoking licenses, a penalty of at least $100,000 per violation, up to 99 years in prison. Let me say that again, 99 years in prison. And there's no exceptions for cases of rape or incest or severe fetal abnormality. There's a carve out, as Amanda just said, for medical emergencies that is somehow vaguely described as, quote, a risk of death or substantial impairment of a major bodily function. So I'm just going to ask you, A, have I basically got it? B, what does any of that even mean? And where these women and their physicians are trapped, could you just explain as one of Amanda's team of lawyers how it is that you're supposed to navigate what her physicians were trying to understand in real time as somebody is on the table in front of them? Thank you, um, Dahlia and Amanda, of course, for telling your story and, and some of the other plaintiffs. I will say that you did get the statutes right. There are three overlapping statutes pre-row ban, trigger ban, SB8, all of them have a similar exception, which you noted, which is death or substantial impairment of a major bodily function. Those words read in black and white, but no doctors can understand what they mean. In fact, the state's own expert in Amanda's case, in the Zorowski case, testified that doctors do not understand what it means, that it's unconscionable that the Texas Medical Board hasn't come in to clarify. And the Supreme Court of Texas did nothing to help with respect to clarifying the language in Kate Cox's case in their recent per curiam decision. I guess in terms of parsing, I mean, what we did in filing this case was try to ask the courts to finally give some clarification because it's been almost two years. And as I said, the Texas Medical Board, no one is providing clarification. But what makes these cases so unique and so important is that real women, real families are telling real stories. These aren't hypotheticals. It's showing the life-threatening crisis that these very laws are putting women in and the fact that doctors' hands are tied. We do have, as you know, 20 plaintiffs in Amanda's case, as well as 20 women who've gone through horrible, heart-wrenching situations like the one Amanda described and others, and two doctors, because doctors do face, as you said, 99 years in prison and loss of license and fines, and their hands are tied because, as we learned in the Texas Supreme Court decision and in Amanda's case, the Texas 
attorney general does believe it has the right to come in and second-guess women's doctors, to second-guess the good faith medical judgment of doctors. And none of us want Attorney General Paxton in our doctor's offices, I can assure you of that. And so that's really the point of these cases, to bring to life the effect of these statutes, to try to clarify them, but also say to make incremental change. I must say that it is the absolute honor and privilege of my legal career to help represent these dozens of women who are standing up to tell their stories because we are taking back the narrative. That's a really important way to to start making change. I want you to be crystal clear, both of you, the relief sought in this case is just to clarify the stinking exception, right? It is not, you are not asking to overturn the laws. You are not asking for new laws. You are essentially saying, please tell our doctors what this means, right? That's the relief sought. You're exactly right. And um, as one of my other attorneys, Molly Duane, often says, we are literally asking for the bare minimum. And It's outrageous that it's gotten to this point that we even have to ask for this, but it's literally the bare minimum. So I think I'm going to ask Jamie to start and then uh, Amanda jump in. Just give us the sort of quick and dirty arc of this litigation from filing to, you know, landing in the Texas Supreme Court, ironically, exactly when Kate Cox is finding out that she, in fact, has a non-viable pregnancy. So you've mentioned there's now 20 plaintiffs. You've mentioned that there are physicians. Uh, There was a hearing. There was an order. There was a fight over, of all things, who has standing to walk into a courtroom and sue. Can you just give us the sort of TikTok of where this started, how it's going. I'll try to briefly go through the timeline because I do think it's important. And the cases do overlap and it's part of an overarching goal, as Amanda said, to make change. But but we're not overreaching. We're asking for clarity so that women's lives stop hanging in the balance here. Um, so we filed uh, Amanda's case on March 6th. We had five women who had life-threatening situations and two doctors, two OBGYNs. We added eight plaintiffs in May. Um, we filed our temporary injunction motion. We then had a hearing July 19th and 20th in Austin. And that is where Amanda and Samantha and Ashley and others got on the stand and told their stories for the world to hear as to what this case meant. The court issued her order on August 4th enjoining enforcement of this ban with respect to people like Amanda and our plaintiffs. After that ruling, we added seven more plaintiffs and people keep coming out. These are not rare or isolated stories. They are are very much the norm that's important for people to understand. These bans across the country are hurting women and pregnant people, uh, you know, all the time. These are not isolated tales. November 14th, we added seven more um, plaintiffs. And then on November 28th, and this is where the cases come together, we had a hearing, uh, the state appealed that that ruling, and we had a hearing in the Texas Supreme Court to argue the fate of Amanda's case. After that hearing, there was a press conference, and Amanda and many of the other plaintiffs were there and were able to talk about the case. And Molly Duane from the center, who was absolutely brilliant in the argument, said at one point, if, if you have issues or you're going through this, please contact us. At that very same moment, Kate Cox was getting her results from her amniocentesis 
that she had the devastating trisomy 18, full trisomy 18 diagnosis, and her child, or the pregnancy which she was carrying, um, was either going to be stillborn or would live minutes, hours, at most a couple of days. Um, and so she reads about Amanda's case, maybe hears the press conference, and she does contact the Center for Reproductive Rights. So that was on a Tuesday. She spoke to Molly Duane on Thursday. We worked over the weekend, and on Tuesday morning, we filed her case seeking a temporary restraining order. The unique thing about Kate's case is she was in the middle of a medical crisis. I would say 99.9% of women, Amanda can testify to this, in the midst of their medical crisis can't bring a lawsuit. Either they don't have time or wherewithal to find a lawyer, to review legal papers, to talk to the media, to to wait. Um, It's too dire. And so they can't be filing lawsuits. Kate was in a situation where she did find the center. We were able to file these papers and she was really brave enough to say, I want to have my health care in my home state that I love, um, where my three-year-old and one-year-old and husband live. So we filed those papers on a Tuesday morning. We had our TRO hearing on Thursday, December 7th. I ask everyone to watch the video of that because Kate's reaction when the judge gives the TRO and says she can get the health care she needs to save her life and future fertility is is really visceral and really moving. Um, Of course, that very same day, Attorney General Paxton started threatening to prosecute anyone who would give Kate an abortion. Flagrant disregard for the court's order. He called it a purported order. He called her an activist judge. Um, it's a playbook I think we, we've heard before. He also appealed the TRO on Friday. This Texas Supreme Court stayed that order. And so Kate was back hanging in the balance as to whether she could get life and fertility saving health care. I will say we had five hours to write our Supreme Court opposition brief, which we did. But then Kate had to wait for days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in bed, ill, anxious, constantly contacting us. Is there any news? What can I do? Um, and as, as I think everyone knows, by Monday, December 11, um, we informed the court that she at this point had to leave the state of Texas to get the care she needed. That is not something women should ever be forced to do. And then later on that day, the Supreme Court of Texas did issue its order uh, reversing and vacating the TRO. So I think the cases have come together. It's clearly proof that these exceptions aren't understandable, are not clear, and frankly don't work in practice and real women and real families are suffering. I'm trying to imagine, for you, Amanda, you you have taken it all the way to the state Supreme Court, and then you hear about Kate, who is in exactly the posture that this lawsuit that you've poured your heart and soul and life into for months is supposed to forestall. And she's right back, in some sense, where you are. Um, And I I guess I just want to ask how that feels to know that this is another human being facing exactly the issues that you were facing in real time, in real time. And her physician is trying to afford her a standard of care that we all know is the appropriate standard of care, except now she's got to go to court for days and days and days. How do you sit with that? Oh, my gosh. So many feelings. <laughs> so many emotions. I think first and foremost, when I heard about it, 
it was just heartbreaking, right? Heart-wrenching. I know what she's feeling. I know what she's going through. Knowing that you're going to lose a child is just, it's the worst. It's the worst possible news you could ever get. Um, so that was my my overwhelming first emotion. Then it was um, a lot of fear for her because I know what can happen. I know what happened to me could happen to her. Um, that pretty quickly turned to anger, outrage that she was even in this position. Because, by the way, had the attorney general not um, filed the motion to appeal our temporary restraining order, Kate wouldn't have been in this position in the first place. She would have been able to get the abortion in Texas that she needed had they not appealed in our case. And so it's just, I mean, it's sickening. Literally, as Jamie was talking, I felt sick to my stomach because she should not be in this position. Nobody should be in this position. And this is the attorney general in the state of Texas coming down and saying, yes, this is what we believe should happen. We stand by this decision and it's just disgusting. Now, on top of all of that, (laughs) complete awe at Kate and her strength and her courage. I mean, I cannot imagine the strength and bravery that that woman has to be able to do this while she's in the middle of the worst news, the worst health crisis of her life. I mean, it is just astounding. And I'm so thankful and grateful that she did what she did. But again, she shouldn't have had to. And my heart just breaks for her. Amanda, I'm glad you said it because during my own pregnancy loss, I I couldn't move or get out of bed or answer the phone. Um, I was like in so much pain and so sad and so terrified. And Jamie, it raises this question for me that you've been battling the state of Texas on, which is this standing question, you know, this issue which goes all the way to the Supreme Court that wants to suggest that nobody has standing to bring this litigation because Amanda has already had her cognizable harm and injury. So she doesn't have standing. The physicians don't have standing. And then presumably we finally have somebody with standing, Kate Cox. The irony is definitely um, rich here, Dahlia. So the state doesn't want these cases to be heard. That's very clear. They have fought very hard in the Zorowski case to argue that there isn't standing. Now, um, we we believe they're wrong from a legal perspective, and we argued that uh, vociferously in the Texas Supreme Court. We only need one plaintiff with standing. The doctors clearly have standing, as do any of the women where there's a, a theory in the law where if something is capable of repetition, but evading review that they still have standing. And obviously, these women who are before the court, this could happen to them again, and they could find themselves in this situation again. So yes, we believe they do have standing. And uh, we certainly hope that when the Texas Supreme Court rules in the Zorowski case, they will get it right, and that it's another opportunity for them to issue a decision and get it, it right in these cases on the exceptions. But as Molly Duane has argued both in the district court and then again in the Texas Supreme Court, I mean, in, in Amanda's case, do, does the state need to have a woman with amniotic fluid and blood dripping down her leg to have standing? And and then in the Texas Supreme Court, it seemed pretty clear that at least some of the justices, or seemed like some of the justices understood that, you know, that if you brought a woman to, who was in the middle of a pregnancy crisis, or of course, th- that she would have standing. And then we brought Kate Cox to the court. 
who exactly was the woman with blood and amniotic fluid, unfortunately, dripping down her leg and in the middle of a medical crisis. And the state's argument was she didn't have standing. The hypocrisy is clear. And the issue is they do not want to face judicial review of these very, very dangerous statutes. I want to add something to what Jamie said, just to help illustrate for folks who might not have seen the hearing or heard any of the audio, the sickening tactics that the state is using in their arguments against why we don't have standing. One of the reasons they said we don't have standing is because, for example, in my case, I'm unlikely to be able to get pregnant again. And so this law won't affect me because I probably can't get pregnant again. And what they fail to realize is that the reason I probably can't get pregnant again is because of what happened to me, because of the laws that they have enacted. It's insane. Yeah. Head explodes. Amanda yep. makes such an important point, right? I And I wanted to note this. In addition to passing these laws, to trying to evade judicial review, I think it's important to note the disdain that the state of Texas and the attorney general's office has really showed for the women in Amanda's case. So we were um, at the temporary injunction hearing in July, and I really believe naively, it's a little, I don't know, like Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, that they would do the right thing. Uh, and they weren't going to actually cross these women who have told the most personal, most gut-wrenching, horrible stories, that they would go lightly, but they didn't. And as Amanda said, what they did was they cross-examined the women in a remarkably cruel fashion, placing the blame on them or their doctors for the predicament that they were in, not taking it any responsibility whatsoever for the statutes or for the lack of clarity. Um, and there was this amazing spontaneous moment after the Texas Supreme Court argument. Amanda, you might remember this. There had been a lot of discussion of, well, why don't you just sue your doctors? It's the doctor's fault. And um, as Molly Duane argued, that's clearly not right. The doctor's hands were tied. And in this moment, Lauren Miller, who was one of the plaintiffs and the uh, the woman who, who did have twins, one of whom actually had trisomy 18, and she did need to terminate one in order to save the life of the healthy twin. She pulled forward her doctor, Dr. Denard, who is both her doctor and a plaintiff in this case, because unbelievably, Dr. Denard had the same issue. And she pulled Dr. Denard forward and said, I'm not suing my doctor. My doctor's standing right here next to me. She is standing up for my rights and for all women's rights. And Dr. Donard's adorable baby was in the courtroom, the one she would not have had, but for her ability to get a life-saving and health-saving abortion. So Amanda is right. Like It's important to note how these women are being treated um, when they do stand up and come forward. Amanda, that actually leads to this question that I've been thinking about, which is, you know, when you testified in July, you and your co-plaintiffs, as Jamie just said, were asked over and over and over again by opposing counsel whether somehow Attorney General Ken Paxton had told you personally that you couldn't have an abortion, whether some state entity had told you you couldn't have an abortion, trying to posit that they weren't responsible. It was your physician if you want to be mad at somebody go after your doctor. And yet here again this week, we see Ken Paxton literally saying to Kate Cox, you can't have an abortion. I mean, he is performing the absurd hypothetical that they were bashing you with at your hearing. Yeah, it's preposterous. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. 
I, yeah, I mean, what do you say? Yeah, there's not, there's, I mean, look, darling, no one in the state is taking responsibility for the human suffering. And they're trying to deflect blame on the women themselves or on their doctors. But it's very clear. Part of the importance of Kate Cox's case is we are drawing out the real truth here, right? Ken Paxton went out after a court reviewed a TRO paper and reviewed a doctor who came in in her good faith medical judgment and said that Kate needed to have this abortion to save her life and to save her future fertility. She wants to have more children. He said, no, that's not good enough. And in fact, I'm going to go and prosecute you if you dare to help this woman. Um, I did want to add uh, one anecdote that that came to mind when you were talking about that, in addition to, to the blame, in addition to the cruel and horrific cross-examination. In Kate's case, the attorney general during the TRO hearing, right at the beginning, actually accused her of dishonesty, right? He said that rather than being in and out of the emergency room as she was in Texas, she was actually, quote, on vacation in sunny Florida. Like our heads almost did explode. And and what did they base that on, Dahlia? We used a remote notary because obviously Kate wasn't in a position to be going to a notary. We used a remote notary who happened to be based in Florida who who notarized her verified petition. And they took that as a sign that she wasn't telling the truth. And when we told them, no, that's not right, they actually dug in. It's so awful as to almost be humorous, but it does show the kind of disdain for the real women in Texas facing real crises. The heartlessness with which they treat us as human beings is just absolutely mind-blowing. So when I was crossed, for example, I don't know what they were trying to do. I don't know what point they were trying to make. Not only did they blame me for being too old because I was 35 when I was pregnant, but then they also, I think they were trying to paint me into a corner because I didn't remember the exact minute that my baby's heart stopped beating as though that's something that I want to relive. And they dug their heels in just like they did with Kate, trying to make me pinpoint it. And for for what reason? I mean, what are they trying to do? I don't know, other than make themselves look really bad, which they did that with flying colors. It's so interesting because in the, in the years after Roe and after Casey, the story we would hear from people who opposed reproductive freedom was, you know, like poor, poor women. They're being misled by abortionists. It was always abortionists. By the way, they called one of the OBs in your case an abortionist in their papers. But, you know, you're just like you have no agency. You have no will. You're just like basically a child who's being misled. And then on a dime, post-Dobbs, we're back to the like, you're evil. (laughs) You hate babies. You're reckless. You're you know, uh, wanton. It's so interesting, that move, that we just want to have mothers make good choices. We want to protect them and nurture them. You know, that's why we have to have extra wide hallways in the clinics. You know, that's why we need to have this kind of curtains on the windows in the clinics. And then on a dime, post-Dobbs, the malevolent not just sort of loathing of women and mothers, as you're saying, Amanda, but the need to control them because those other people who are controlling them suddenly somehow are out of the picture. It's breathtaking. Yep. The control factor is just astounding. I mean, how are we living in this world where I don't have the right to make the decision for my own health care with my doctor who is trained and has my best interests at heart. And by the way, in his filing, in Kate's case, the attorney general basically says that he knows more about healthcare than all of the doctors in Texas. 
And so we should be listening to him because he knows what's best for women more than we know for ourselves and our doctors know for us. Can you imagine? Jamie, this exact kind of bait and switch that Amanda's describing, you know, we're not doctors, the doctors are to blame, but also we're doctors. Um, This just pervades the Texas Supreme Court order that came down in Kate's case. You get the Supreme Court simultaneously saying like, hey, we're not doctors, this shouldn't be in the hands of judges, but also that doctor was not in good faith. And so it's this amazing effort to both suck and blow, right? To evade responsibility, to put it back on physicians, and then to say, but oh, if you get it wrong, physician, if in 10 years some lunatic AG says you got it wrong, oh, then you go to jail for 99 years. I mean, which is it? Who is to blame here and who makes the decision? Dahlia, the laws are to blame. The attorney generals who are enforcing them the way they are are to blame, not the doctors. The statute was already confusing, as Dr. Scott, the state's expert, made very clear as she recognized and conceded that it was the Texas Supreme Court's decision perhaps made it more confusing. Um, the question is, what do those words mean in practice? Because here we had Dr. Carson make and swear to a good faith medical judgment that Kate Cox needed this abortion. The state is always going to find an expert to come in and second guess a doctor's medical judgment. And then, as you said, if Dr. Carson had moved forward, as A.G. Paxson made very clear, she'd be prosecuted. Um, and we're talking about 99 years in prison and loss of medical license. So these are real problems that need to be clarified by the courts. It does have to be resolved because it's not tenable for women and for doctors to be in this situation. Um, You know, thank goodness for Amanda and Samantha and Lauren and Kate and all of the women who are willing to come forward because I think I've heard Amanda say or someone say that, you know, testifying that, that temporary injunction hearing was almost as horrible as when you were facing sepsis. So all of you are being asked to relive this for the benefit of sort of all women in Texas, but also across the country because these laws are replicated in many of the banned states. It made me think, Dahlia, back to the pre-Row days, the late 1960s, early 1970s, and abortion was illegal across the country. It took brave women who started doing speakouts to tell their stories of illegal abortion, to get the ball rolling, to legalize, and eventually there were lawsuits in New York and in Connecticut, and then Roe v. Wade. So change is incremental. I want to remain hopeful here that these cases are bringing to light the problem. It's a flashlight on why these laws don't make any sense, why abortion bans are so dangerous. Hopefully we take back the narrative. Hopefully voters understand that when they go to vote for people and on proposals like in Ohio. So um, it is frustrating, but I think this is the way to make change. And uh, and you know, thank you to Amanda and, and everyone else who's doing that. Well, I want to say, Jamie, thank you for your, your kind, you know, Look, this does suck and I don't like doing it, but it's really important and I will continue to do it. And I think my fellow plaintiffs will as well, because it's exactly what the state doesn't want us to do, right? They want us to run away. They want us to be scared. They want us to be silent. And I've never been good at doing what I'm told. And so um, it's it's not going to happen. I'm going to fight back. And look, every time we speak out, more people come forward. In this case, a lawsuit was brought because we were speaking out. And it's, I mean, it's heartbreaking and it's agonizing, but it's also kind of beautiful that every time we give light to our stories, it gives courage to someone else. And even though I hate that there are this many people in these situations, 
I think we have to keep talking about it and we have to give them the strength and the courage because the more we do, the more we're shedding light on this this reality that's just getting worse and worse. Yeah. Can I just jump in? Because one other thing I want to mention is that the Texas Supreme Court's decision, in addition to more confusion, does seem to indicate that threat to fertility is not enough. And there is quite an irony to that when we're talking about life and we're talking about, you know, children like this woman, Kate Cox, came wanting to have more children. All of our plaintiffs wanted to have more children. And the doctors were very clear that because she had had two C-sections, if she was forced to carry a, a child that it was not sustainable with life, right, a pregnancy that was not sustainable with life, to carry it to, to another C-section, major surgery, that would impact negatively her ability to ever have more children. So the fact that there's not even a mention of the threat to her fertility, I, I will note in the Texas Supreme Court's decision, risk to substantial impairment of a major bodily function, I would have thought meant fertility. And that seems to be lost in the opinion. Um, they have another chance in the decision in the Zarelski case, and I, I do hope they get it right. I want to ask both of you, You've both made this point in different ways. Jamie, you've sort of mentioned at that press conference after the Supreme Court hearing, you know, the, the, this attempt to persistently drive a wedge between your plaintiffs and their physicians. And it's so clear to me, you know, I think I've been saying this since SB8, that this entire program is about isolating pregnant women at the moment when they most need counsel and sage advice and quick action. But I want you to both of you sort of answer, and, and maybe this is unfair to put it on you to answer this. You know, we've, we've done shows um, about physicians who are threatened with, you know, felony prosecutions and, and loss of licensure. And what you hear over and over again is my hands are tied where my hands are tied. But what you also hear, I think, from critics on our side is they're just too tentative. They're too risk averse. Why don't they just do the hard thing, take the chance and make sure that Kate Cox can have children in the future? I think that's an unfair critique, but I hear it a lot that the medical profession is just too cautious. The insurance premiums are too high. Hospitals are too terrified. Medical boards are full of no people. Can you answer this critique, which is, I think, another attempt to drive a wedge between one set of your plaintiffs in Amanda's case and the other set? I think that's really an unfair thing to ask physicians to do. I would never, ever ask my doctor oh, please, please risk hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines. Please risk going to prison for the rest of your life. Please risk losing your license and your well-being. I mean, that's an insane ask. I would never, ever ask my physician to do that. And <laughs> Ken Paxton has made it very clear that if and when physicians do provide abortions, he will prosecute. So these aren't hypothetical repercussions. These are realities. And he's made it very clear that he's willing to pursue them and probably will. Yeah, I, D Dahlia, my response to that was, these are criminal laws. And in, in addition to civil penalties, you are asking a doctor to make a decision that will absolutely be second-guessed 
by the state of Texas's attorney general and his hired experts. And if Kay Cox didn't fit in this exception, then I don't know who does. And yet they found a doctor to say, well, she's not sick enough. She's not close enough to death. The fertility isn't enough. And so it is completely unfair to put doctors in that position. But some doctors have now come forward and become plaintiffs in lawsuits. So uh, good for them. As Amanda noted, Ken Paxson on December 7th wrote a letter to three hospitals, and he specifically said the TRO will not insulate you or anyone else from civil and criminal liability for violating the abortion laws, including first-degree felony prosecutions. And it goes on and on. We did bring that to the attention of the district court and thought it was sanctionable conduct. But I think Ken Paxson has made it very clear, and I think any critics of doctors should really read that letter because it's the risks are are enormous. And frankly, it's the Texas Medical Board who should be clarifying so their doctors know what they can and can't do. But at the moment, though, it's not fair to put that all on a doctor. And you know, they have families and lives. And to ask them to go to jail for 99 years based on the second guessing of the attorney general, is it's not reasonable. Can I ask you one housekeeping question, Jamie, because I'm suspecting You've been asked it a bunch this week. I know I have. And that is, is Kate Cox going to face any liability for leaving the state of Texas to terminate her pregnancy in another state? The answer is no. It is not illegal to leave the state of Texas to obtain your health care abortion out of state where it is still legal. These bans do not have extraterritorial reach. That would be unconstitutional. In fact, in states where attorney generals and governors have made noise about extraterritorial reach, that was Idaho and Alabama, the court struck those claims down. So thankfully, at the moment, there are many states where people can get help and the health care they need, they just shouldn't be forced to travel. But no, she will not face um, liability for traveling. But circling back around to what we were saying earlier about the control of pregnant people and the intimidation and fear, they're trying to make it impossible for us to leave and get the health care that we need. There are these bans that they're trying to enact into law now in Texas. And I don't even know, Jamie, you know maybe how how far along these are as to becoming law, but making it illegal to use a road to get somewhere to access an abortion. I mean, it's just absurd. And, you know, I don't think it's necessarily something that's enforceable. But it serves as fear-mongering, intimidation, control, and, you know, who knows where they'll stop. Yeah, fear-mongering is a word that I use a lot in this context. And yes, these municipal laws to try to stop transit on roads, you know, that's um, that's not America, and that is fear-mongering. Amanda, you actually made this point in your congressional testimony, and I think it's probably worth surfacing it again here. Um, you know, when you sort of said, I was lucky enough to have a husband who can drive me. I was lucky enough to have health care. I mean, I think the point you're both making right now is so essential, which is the notion that the bulk of women can hop on a plane in the middle of a medical crisis and go across an abortion desert to some other state is just it's the product of like, I don't know what kind of like Hallmark movie thinking it is, but we don't live our lives this way, particularly not in Texas. And Amanda, even though you were in the most excruciating moment of your life, you had in some sense advantages that so many pregnant people in Texas will never have. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy to talk about that because, you know, it's something I feel very passionate about. And it's kind of what got us involved in all of this in the first place is that I am the best case scenario in this situation. There are a lot of people that this is going to happen to that will not be as quote unquote lucky. 
which is disgusting to say, but you know, I, I work from home. My husband works from home. We have jobs that are flexible. They allowed us to be on this kind of holding pattern while we waited for things to go south, essentially. A lot of folks don't have that luxury. I don't have other living children that I had to arrange childcare for. We have access to a large healthcare system that's near our home that we could get to within 15 minutes when I went into septic shock. I mean, all of these things are advantages that I had in place that made it possible for me to survive. And they make it possible for me to survive everything that we're doing now, right? A lot of folks do not have these resources. They don't have these advantages. And, you know, I've said before, what's going to happen to them? Well, I think we know. If I didn't have all of those things in place, if I had tried to get to one of the states that's a sanctuary state to get an abortion, and I had gone septic in the middle of the Texas desert or on an airplane, I probably would have died. And if people haven't died as a result of these bans yet, I think it's going to happen. And it's it's entirely preventable. Dolly, to add to Amanda's point, there are two major problems or maybe more to travel. There are people like Amanda who are seeking sepsis and literally too sick to travel and might die trying to do so. So that's obviously one major barrier. The other are women like Samantha, our plaintiff, who had four children and a job where she couldn't travel or, or her partner and didn't have the means to do it. And so she was forced to carry that child to term to hold it in her arms while it gasped for breath. It had anencephaly and died. That has had major repercussions to her physical health now going forward. Her other children had to go through that. So we really shouldn't be flippant that everyone should just travel because it is expensive. It requires childcare and time off work and the ability and means to do so. People should be able to get healthcare in their own state, in their own homes with their support networks. What these cases have made clear, and hopefully people are hearing, is that abortion is part of regular maternal health care. Before we say goodbye, um, and I want to just add my voice, I am so grateful for the both of you and what you have done. Um, But I want to just tackle this question of Texas, because, you know, just in the last few days, the U.S. Supreme Court granted cert in the Mifepristone case, which quickly became a story about Texas, right? One wacky judge in Texas. And we will talk about that in our Slate Plus segment. But I think it's really important for you both to help us understand this is not just about Texas. We had another case out of Kentucky this week in October. An Ohio woman was charged with a felony after a miscarriage. Amanda, it's important that you're originally from Indiana. Jamie, it's important that you live in Manhattan. And I would love in much the same way that I wanted you to debunk the idea that you can just hop on a plane to California, I would love for you both to explain to any listener who is tempted to say that your case is a function of Texas and the choice to live in Texas, because what happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas. It's a bellwether for the rest of the country. And this is happening everywhere. And Amanda, I wonder if you would just start. What is your response when people say, I mean, dude, just move to New York? Well, people ask me that all the time, whether we're going to leave the state. And my answer is a resounding no, because again, that's exactly what they want me to do. They want me to run away scared. They want the problem that they pretend doesn't exist to go away. They want us to be silent. Well, it's not going to happen. And, you know, on top of that, I think that this is a growing problem across the country and it can flip on a dime. I mean, we can see some of these quote unquote safe states enact these same types of laws, these same types of bans in 
a matter of years, right? Just by electing the wrong people. And so when people ask me about this, I ask, you know, who are you voting for? What are you doing? Because that's what it's going to take is we need to keep people in office who are pro-choice or we need to vote out the people who are not pro-choice because this is a reality that is not only already happening in other places, but it will continue to spread as long as we let it. And so that's why we're fighting back. The other thing I'll say is anytime I speak out, anytime there's some sort of monumental announcement in the case or something like that, and it kind of gets to the forefront of the news again, I hear from so many people across the country, strangers, mostly on social media, that reach out and say they had something similar happen to them in a different state. And they're not necessarily bringing legal challenges, but this is happening across the country. I'm telling you, and it's going to continue as long as we don't do something about it. These aren't isolated cases, and these aren't isolated Texas-only laws. Texas just was out ahead. SB 8, as most people know, went into effect before Roe v. Wade was overturned, and we litigated that case as well. So Texas has had a longer experience with abortion being essentially illegal, but other states have copycatted. Absolutely, it's 20-plus states now, right, that have criminal abortion bans with unworkable exceptions, much like in Texas, and no exceptions for rape or incest. Yes, we've brought the case in Texas its farthest along, but we've also sued in Tennessee on exceptions, in Idaho, in North Dakota. You talked about the horrible case of the woman being prosecuted for a miscarriage in Ohio. So they are going to replicate. I will also note that we do hear politicians throw about the idea of a nationwide ban on abortion. This could happen anywhere and everywhere and to all of us. And everyone does need to understand that when they vote, that there are real life consequences. These abortion bans are dangerous. They are scary. And there is no real workable way around it. Abortion, as I said, is healthcare. But yes, this is not Texas only, but Texas has the, I guess, the distinction of being first. And one thing I'll add to that is that when I first came forward with my story, one of the overwhelming reactions I got was shock. And sadly, that shock doesn't exist anymore because we are so used to hearing these types of stories because they are so common. They're becoming normalized because it's happening so frequently. Jamie, do you have one last thought for us as an attorney in this case that is uphill, uphill, clawing it, uh, what folks can be doing? I think by filing this, these lawsuits, we've already won. It's something I say to my team all the time. We're going to face losses. We're going to face Texas Supreme Court decisions. Um, but we have won by bringing the case and by making people understand how commonplace this is, how much it could touch everyone's life, the importance of abortion as a role in maternal health care, um, and the danger of criminalizing abortion, whether it's in states, whether it's 0, 6, 12, or 15 weeks, and whether it's nationwide. So I'm really proud to be able to do something with my legal career to be able to, to push forward, hopefully, for change. Amanda, I think I need to let you have the last word because, as I said up top, it just annihilates me that I have to make you relive and that your, um, you know, co-plaintiffs have to keep uh, reliving uh, what happened to you. Uh, and then you have to testify before Congress and then you have to sit in front of hostile counsel. Um, and you've been so generous again today. And so there's a cost to this and there's a cost to a week like this. And for all of us, I think watching what happened to Kate Cox, um, it takes out a chunk of your soul. And so 
I think I want to ask on behalf of listeners who are probably sad and a little bit terrified what it is that keeps you going doing this work, even in the face of just what feels like sometimes um, really intractable structural efforts to hold you down. You know what? At this point, I feel like it's my responsibility, honestly. Um, I feel like I was put on this earth. I was built. I was made to do this. And, you know, it's certainly not what I would have chosen to be built for, but I feel like it's my responsibility. And it is my greatest honor in life and my greatest, I don't know if privilege is the right word, but it's definitely an honor to fight this fight on behalf of so many. And I do believe I'm fighting on behalf of so many because the amount of support I have from folks across the country, across the world, my own family, my own friends, my legal team, reporters like you, I mean, it is just overwhelming. And that's what keeps me going. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, it is exhausting. This fight is the thing that puts me to sleep at night, but it's also what gets me out of bed in the morning. Amanda Zorowski is lead plaintiff in a landmark case challenging Texas's abortion regulations. She lives in Texas. And I'm sorry. And Jamie Levitt is a trial lawyer and managing partner of the New York office of Morrison Forster and is one of the many, many attorneys who have come together to create the legal team who, along with the Center for Reproductive Rights, represents not just Amanda and her co-plaintiffs in the case, but represented Kate Cox this week. Thank you both so very much for your light and your voices. I wish you happy holiday season and thank you for your work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dahlia. And that's a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your comments. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. We love your letters. Sarah Burningham is senior producer. Patrick Fort is our producer. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. Susan Matthews is Slate's executive editor. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next week. And until then, hang on in.